Let's pray. Father, with great anticipation of your ability to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, we trust that your word will accomplish the thing that you send it out to accomplish, that it will not return to you void, that in your sovereign will you will orchestrate the teaching of your word in such a way as to meet the needs of your people, even if those very people don't understand that their need is being met because you know what we need better than we do. And so, Lord, I just ask that we would trust you, that we would trust and believe your word, and that as it's taught, you would produce sanctification in your people, that your gospel would be magnified, that Jesus would be exalted, and Father, you would be glorified as your spirit does your work. So we're dependent on you now, and we're dependent on your word. I just ask that we would be willing and ready to receive it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll just say, I haven't preached in two weeks, so you know what happens when you, at least in the cartoons, when you kink a hose in the cartoons, it doesn't happen in real life, unfortunately. When you kink that hose in a cartoon, what happens to the water? It builds up really big behind the kink. Right, And then one of the cartoon characters puts the hose on the other character and a huge blast of water comes flying out. That's me today. <laughs> That's me after two weeks of not getting to preach. I'm, just, I'm like kinked up with all this stuff I want to say to you guys. This is going to be like a two-hour sermon, okay? Buckle up. Just kidding. I'm glad you laughed at that. <laughs> but I mean like, aw. So uh, I'm excited to be back didn't really feel like I was gone, to be honest, but um, it's, it's a pleasure to be able to step behind the pulpit and behind the Word and teach you again. Um, I love teaching you for two reasons. I love teaching you because, number one, okay, I've got more than two reasons. Number one, I love Jesus. I love God. I love the Spirit. Amen. Number two, I love His Word. His Word is, this is Christ. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Revelation 19, 13, Jesus is called the Word of God. I love the Word of God because it's Christ. Amen. Christ is the truth of God's Word. So I love the Word. I love God. I love the gift that God has given me, and I love to use it. I love to teach, and I love to preach. And, okay, so I guess there's four reasons. Number four, I love you, which is makes doing the other things I love so much more pleasurable to do with people that I love, right? So uh, I'm excited to get back into the Word and the teaching setting. And what you'll, if you remember a few weeks ago when the last time I preached, we finished the section on eldership, on elders in verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So today we're in verse 8. 
So we finished the qualifications for elders last time, and now we move into qualifications for deacons. And what you'll notice is that the qualifications are very similar, and that is for good reason. And that reason, which we will address today, is to ensure that the sound doctrine that is taught by the elders is upheld by the sound practice of that very doctrine and the way that the church is served in their practical ministries. So we'll address that later, but I want you to hear that as a big point here, that the reason the qualifications are so similar between an elder and a deacon, now the elder and the deacon roles are very distinct from each other. They are very different in many ways. They do different things, but the qualifications are almost identical. And the reason is to ensure that as the elders teach sound doctrine, the deacons practice that sound doctrine, which requires men who are qualified and equipped to almost the same degree as the elders. The deacon is not a church leader in the same way that an elder is a church leader. They're not the shepherds of the church or the teachers of the church um, or the preachers. Uh, They are not shepherds as the elders are. Rather, they are like the hands that function on behalf of the elders doing the ministry and service that is required to support the biblical teaching of the church. Meaning, the importance of the role of deacon is that they're the ones who logistically fulfill the teaching of the church. And by doing so, they set the example by their service to Christ. So it's a very important role, very distinct and very significant Therefore, it has very strict qualifications, just as the elder did. And with such an important role, we'll see today why it is vital that the deacon be a godly man. So, we're in verse 8, and we'll just cover the first half of verse 8 today. Um, Paul says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued. So, there are... Two qualifications that we're going to address, the being dignified and not being double-tongued. But first, I want to talk about the first two words, deacon and then likewise. So a deacon is a servant, okay? So if you think of, if you're ever wondering, like, what is a deacon? You can boil it down to one word, servant. That's the role of a deacon, to serve. The Greek word for deacon is diakonos. Now, that is, that Greek word means servant or helper. And the same Greek word is used in Acts chapter 6, which is the first establishment of deacons in the church. As the church was new and the church was growing early, we see this early in Acts, uh, that there's this massive like growth in the body of Christ as the gospel spread. We think about it, why did the gospel spread and grow so quickly? Apart from our theological truths that we would say, well, God was at work and the spirit was changing people's hearts and God sovereignly orchestrated it and they preached the gospel and whatever. Ultimately, what is happening in all of these circumstances in the book of Acts early and not only early, but throughout is the church is serving the needs of people who need help. 
And that is exactly what Jesus did several times. How many times did Jesus feed thousands of people or heal people or cast out demons or, or have conversations with people that changed their life? I mean, Jesus was constantly serving the needs of people. And then the apostles pick up right where Jesus left off and they start preaching the gospel and serving the needs of people. And as people's needs are met, they're able to hear the gospel that's taught. So fulfilling people's needs is one of the means of God's sovereign grace to ensure that people are ready and able and willing to hear the gospel. It doesn't mean every physical earthly need needs to be met in order to believe the gospel. That's not at all what that means. But it can be a means that God uses to lead people to Christ. And so early in the church, Acts 6, we see that the church has been growing and there becomes, and, and, they, and they realize that they, they've got a problem. There was this practical work of ministry that required people to do very practical things like feeding the hungry and providing for the poor and taking care of widows, which we'll see later in 1 Timothy. Now, the church was, they, they were reading scripture, they were preaching and they were teaching and they were studying and they were praying and they were fasting and they were doing communion of the Lord's Supper and they were spreading the gospel. So on a spiritual sense, the church is just flourishing, it's passionate, it's powerful, zealous for the gospel, zealous for Christ, zealous for growth, zealous to, to evangelize the world with the gospel of Jesus. So on a spiritual level, everything was working very well. They were full of ambition to grow spiritually and to know Christ more. But what happened in Acts 6 is that some of the practical realities of, of being the church started to reveal that they didn't really have everything in order. So some people started to complain that the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of goods. Meaning the widows who were very dependent on the help of the church, and rightfully so, like I said, we'll see this in 1 Timothy 5, they were not receiving what they needed. And this comes after the church had already established that their collection of goods and money for the church would provide for the needs of those who cannot provide for themselves. And widows are a prominent group who fit that bill because in the first century, women didn't work. I mean, the culture of the first century was so different from our culture today where if there is a widow, depending on her age, um, she can go get a job. Right In the first century, way less common and way less acceptable culturally. So widows really needed help. And when the church was established, the widows started to realize there's this group of people who are sacrificially willing to do whatever it takes to take care of my needs. And God used that as a means to draw widows to Christ. And not just as a means to draw widows to Christ, but widows who believed in Christ and were a part of the church were also, and I'd almost say, according to 1 Timothy 5, more important, they were more important that they would be taken care of. And so there's this reality in Scripture that we see, and we see it here in Acts 6 too, that they have to take care of the widows. And it's not just the widows, but that was the specific problem that was going on in Acts 6. So when the 12 apostles heard about this, when they heard about the lack of care for the widows, they gathered the whole church together. And they said in Acts 6, 2 through 4, 
So this is the 12 apostles speaking to the church. They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So this is the first appointment of deacons in scripture. Now, the word deacon is not used in this text. But the Greek word for deacon, which is diakonos, which is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3, 8. That same word is used in Acts 6, 1. And it's translated into the word that we have in English, distribution. And so this idea is that the distribution of goods to those who are in need is, was the church's service. So this word diakonos means servant or to serve. And the church was distributing goods to people who needed them. And that was their service. And so the same Greek word is used. It's just not translated as deacon in our English Bibles. But it does reveal that's the same work. So scripture doesn't tell us in Acts 6 that this is officially the establishment of deaconship or that the apostles in this scenario in Acts 6 are the elders. But it's, it is a very well-matched picture of eldership and deaconship that we see take place early in the church. And also notice that there is a clear distinction between elders and deacons. Though those words are not used, elder, deacon, we see those roles clearly. And the 12 apostles are essentially representing what will become elders in the church. And what these 12 apostles say in the midst of this problem that there's nobody taking care of, of, of this group of people's needs, as they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So that's the apostles talking about themselves in sort of an elder function. They're leading and shepherding and teaching the church, just like elders do. And they're saying, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, meaning the elders can't do it all. That's what they're saying. They say, we can't teach the church and pray and read and study and lead and shepherd and guide and counsel and worship and do all these things and promote and teach and strengthen and encourage and, and sanctify the church and serve tables and prepare the music and set up communion and clean the homes and visit these people and do these things that they can't do it all. And everyone would agree with that on a practical, logistical Love on a pragmatic level, it's impossible for one small group of people or one or two men to do all the things in the church. No one in the church would ever expect that. And so that sounds kind of maybe a little selfish, like, oh, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It almost sounds like they're saying, oh, we don't want to do it. It's not at all their heart. They're recognizing the distinction between roles. They're saying, this isn't our role. We need to find someone else to do it. So they have a priority which is not the practical service to the body or to the community. And the point is so strongly stated that the apostles even say that for them to serve in that way is not right. That's a strong statement. It's not right. It's not just a matter of, ah, we don't think we should do it. He's saying it would be inappropriate if we did. And then they have a solution. So... 
the apostles told the body, here's the solution. Pick out from among them seven men. So the congregation is now given a task. And their task is to pick seven men. But when they give this task, they say, well, these men are not automatically going to be placed in deaconship because you picked them. Instead, what the apostles say is, whom we will appoint to this duty. So the body picks the men and the elders do the appointing. And this we saw as we went through uh, the first seven verses in 1 Timothy 3 is this authority of the elders in the church to do the appointing for roles in the church. Meaning the ultimate authority for who gets to fill these roles are the elders. The elders get to decide. But you can see that it's not just elder-led in the sense that the elders are dictators who speak to the church, say, this is what we're doing, you're doing that, you're doing that, do what we say, period, end of discussion. They include the body. They give the body of Christ, the people, opportunity to put into practice their doctrine that they've been taught to use their wisdom and their knowledge and their understanding of God and of godliness and of godly men and to see the example that they've seen in the, in the, in, in the apostles and in the church and, and to use all that wisdom and knowledge and, and awareness to look amongst themselves and say, who are the seven men who are, as he says, of good reputation, full of the spirit and wise? That we can bring forward to the apostles. Now think about this. You're given a task. You're standing before the, the 12 apostles. Peter, you know, John, Matthew, so on and so forth. You've got all these famous men who are like literally the pillar of the church. They knew the Lord Jesus personally. These are These guys are are famous and they have established a standard of righteousness that is so high. And then they give you a task. Hey, go do something that requires wisdom, knowledge and understanding and then bring your result to us. That's probably a nerve wracking task, right? It's like, well, what if we bring forward Bob? And they're like, Bob's not good enough. Get out of here. Who brought Bob forward? Raise your hand. Like, that's, a, that's a, maybe a little bit of a scary task for these people. But they're given this opportunity to put into practice the very things that they've been taught. And so there is a, a sense of unity and cohesion that takes place in this act that, that happens in Acts chapter 6. Because the, the, the church gets to... Look amongst themselves, look inwardly and evaluate and determine and decide what men would be qualified to bring forward to the 12 apostles whom they would not reject, but they would appoint. So there's this high calling that the congregation begins to feel like, oh, we have to, we got this very important job. We got to bring, we got to pick out seven godly men to bring forward. And they took it seriously and they brought forward seven men to the apostles whom they appointed to this service. So they pick these men, the elders appoint them. And the reason the elders are appointing them is because they said, and the reason, I should clarify, the reason it's the elders doing the appointing and not the congregation 
is because they said that the requirement for the deacons is that they are men of good repute, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. That, or those, are spiritual requirements. The requirement for deaconship is not men who want to do it. The requirement for deaconship is not men who are able-bodied or men who have the time. Those are never mentioned in Scripture as qualifications. Or, you know, whatever other reason a man can have. Like, I want to be a deacon because I like this particular thing or because I want to do it. That, that's never mentioned as a qualification. Instead, the requirement is men who are spiritually mature. Now, let me just... Before I go on, I keep saying men, okay? There is a debate within the, within the idea of deaconship. Obviously, as we discussed before, elders is a role reserved for men. We see that at the end of chapter 2. Paul makes it very clear. His reason is because that's the created, the created order of things. Like Paul goes back to creation, to Genesis, and says this is the reason men are to lead the church in the role of eldership and why women are not allowed to have that authority of pastor, elder, or teacher over men because of creation, because that's the way God created us and ordered us. So we see that in eldership. But then when you get to deaconship, and you see verse 11, it mentions their wives likewise. And so there becomes this debate. And this debate is happening in the church even today of can a deacon be a woman or a deaconess as we call them or is deaconship reserved only for men i'm not going to answer that question today we'll answer that question when we get to verse 11 but for the sake of just preaching for the homiletic of my preaching um, i'm just going to use the word men but i'm not necessarily being inclusive until i clarify where our church stands on the position of women's roles in terms of how they serve the church so we'll address that later but I just wanted to clarify that because I keep using the word men. Um, so the requirement is that there are men who are spiritually mature, which is revealed, the spiritual maturity is revealed in their good reputation, that they are full of the spirit and that they are wise. And this is why the elders, this is why the elders need to do the appointing because they are the ones who need to ensure that the sound doctrine that they teach is practiced and they can ensure that by placing the right people in the right ministries and the elders are the ones who are supposed to be mature enough to determine what men genuinely fit these parameters of spiritual maturity to ensure that the practices and service of the church is done in a way that lines up with the doctrine that they teach. And by doing this, the elders can continue to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word without having to be concerned about whether or not the deacons are making practically wise decisions based on biblical principles. I can tell you in my own personal experience as a pastor, I've been a pastor for like 18 years or something. And in all that time, I've seen it over and over and over again where, you know, you put the wrong person in the wrong role. Not that they're like a bad person or something. It's just, it's just not their calling. It's not their role. And you put the wrong person in the wrong role and it goes wrong. You know, and you have problems and you grow through it and it's fine. But, but it's, it's vital to the church that these roles 
of this role of deacon that is, in a sense, a form of leadership by example and a form of leadership in that they're acting as servants of Christ and they tend to lead particular ministries, that, those men have to be theologically sound, doctrinally sound, and the elders, they need to be men that the elders trust. Trust them enough to know that I know that man or I know that person is doctrinally sound, so I don't have to worry if I give them this particular ministry. I know that their knowledge and doctrine is so sound that they will put it into practice in the way they function in this ministry or this service. And that's essentially why the elders are the ones doing the appointing and why the men themselves who become deacons need to fit these requirements. Now, the second word in our text is likewise. So he says, deacons, likewise, which is Paul's way, using this word likewise, is Paul's way of saying or indicating that just as the elders have qualifications they must meet, so also the deacons have qualifications they must meet. And the reason for this, I just stated, so that as the deacons serve the practical needs of the body, he isn't doing ministry without a sound biblical basis, but instead he's being led by the Spirit in his service, working for the Lord so that his labor is not in vain. And that ensures that the practical service of the church lines up with the sound doctrine that is taught by the elders, because nothing is more frustrating to a body of believers than one thing being said and the opposite thing being done. Oh, I thought you guys teach this, then why are we doing it that way? I thought you said this, then why is that happening? And it looks like hypocrisy, and that hypocrisy, which we'll see here in a second, is important to avoid as much as possible. So the qualifications that Paul lists here are significant in that they protect the church from lacking the integrity between their teaching and their practice. And therefore, the deacon must be a godly man who fulfills all these qualifications. And by the way, Qualifications between the, uh, for the deacon are not that much different from the qualifications for elder. The main distinction between the two being that the elders are required to teach. So you can see if you look at uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and then you look at verses 8 through 13, and you look at those two chunks as the elder section and the deacon section, they're not that different and, and, and if you're thinking, well, that's a high standard to set for guys who aren't church leaders called deacons, well, that, again, is to ensure that what the elders are saying is being done by the men who serve as deacons. So the first qualification that Paul puts forward for the deacon is that the deacon must be dignified. Now, the word dignified actually means serious. So that word means serious. The deacon is to take serious matters seriously. He's not to be flippant or casual with the significance of his work to serve the legitimate needs of the body. And and what it shows here is that he takes his role seriously and that he thinks of his responsibility as meaningful. 
And he takes it seriously because he understands that the doctrine that supports his practice and his service and his ministry is super important and should be taken very seriously. So if we take the teaching of sound doctrine seriously, but we take the practice of that doctrine not seriously, that is hypocrisy. That is a lack of integrity. And this is why the deacon must be dignified. And and this idea of dignity in the deacon is not just that he's always serious. That's not what that means. It's that he takes his role serious. That it's not just like, you know, uh, if there's a sad widow who comes to him and is like, I'm struggling and I'm in need and I, I need help. And he goes, you know, makes some wise crack or joke and laughs about it. It's like, that's inappropriate. And if he understands what is taught and what the church should be practicing, he's going to take that moment with dignity or with seriousness, meaning that he's wise enough. So this is why the, this is why the apostles said, the, the men you pick for deacons have to be wise and full of the spirit because these men have to use their wisdom to gauge every situation in the way that they serve the needs of the body. So when there's a person who's in need and they come to a deacon and say, here's my need, can you fill it? The deacon is wise enough and full of the spirit to know what measure of seriousness or lightheartedness is required for this scenario. And now that I've gauged that and I've acted appropriately within the situation, now I have the wisdom to move forward to make practical and logistical steps that actually provide for the need of this person. Why? Because he takes his job seriously. That doesn't mean he can't have fun. It doesn't mean he can't laugh. It's not like, no, this is serious. No fun. Deacons have no fun. We literally created a position at our church a couple years ago called the Deacon of Fun because there were some things we wanted to do that were fun. We wanted to focus on fellowship. And so um, it's not that it can't be fun. It's that The seriousness or the word dignity there means that the deacon understands the relationship between the teaching that supports his practice. And this speaks to the importance of the gospel. The ministry of the deacon is not a lesser role than the elders. In terms of like worth and value, it's not a lesser role. Rather, the deacon's role is distinct from the elder's role. The deacon's responsibility to serve the practical needs of the body is sustenance to the teaching and the leading role of the elder. So like the deacon's responsibility is very significant. Like it's one thing to teach the word. It's one thing to preach the word. It's one thing to show up for for you or me to show up at church, to show up at Bible study, to show up at prayer service, to show up at family discipleship, to show up for one-on-one discipleship, to show up at life groups, to show up at Bible studies, to do all those things that we do every week. We show up, we listen, we learn, and we grow. That's good. But James tells us, don't just be hearers, be what? Doers. So this role of deacon is like, The second half of what James is saying, the elders are teaching, so you have to be hearers of the word. But once you hear the word, absorb the truth, learn it, understand it, now you have to implement it in life 
and serve the body of Christ and serve the needs of others sacrificially. We have to actually put it into practice, not just be hearers, but doers. When you show up on Sunday morning and you show up to a Bible study and you show up to life group and you show up to family discipleship or you do any other kind of discipleship or whatever you come to throughout the week here at Grace Church, you're being a hearer. Now, there is a doing that you're doing. One of the thing that you're doing is you're showing up, right, which is fantastic. But you are receiving and learning and growing. And I've always said that there's a distinction because there have been, in my experience in ministry, there have been times where people have been like, well, I don't want to do this other thing that, you, that we're doing in church because I'm already at church doing this, this, and that. And I remember saying to a guy, well, here's what you need to understand, that there is a distinction between being at the church to receive and being at the church to give. Or to serve, right? There are, like, there's a different degree of energy that you output when you come to church to do a thing. To serve the church in whatever ministry you do. And it's a totally different energy output to come to church and receive something from someone else. So there's a distinction. So there's this man that I was talking to and he said, "Uh, I'm already doing so much for the church. And I said, actually, if we really break it down, you're only doing this one thing for the church. All the other things you're doing are at the church. You're showing up for Bible study and discipleship and life group and this and that. And all of those situations you are receiving from someone else their service to pour the word of God into your heart. That's your feeding, your being fed versus that one time when you show up at church and you do the feeding and you're feeding others. So create that, dis- that distinction is important because when I think about now, as a pastor, my situation is very different in how I serve the church. But if I'm a church member, not an elder or a pastor, I will look at my ministry or my, my involvement at the church and say, all right, I need to take the different things I do and create two categories. The ways in which I f- I'm doing the feeding and the ways in which I'm being fed. And how much of my time is being spent on both. And if you realize, oh, all the things I'm doing at church is me being fed then maybe we need to find some ways in which we can participate in the feeding or the serving the body. And there doesn't necessarily need to be a balance between those two things. You could, be receive, you could be being fed five times throughout the week and only serve maybe once or twice. You don't need to equal, you know, even them out. But the point is people often get exhausted by, you know, I got to church on Sunday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday and then Thursday and then Friday and then or whatever you're doing, right? And it's like, well, hold on. You're going there to be fed. So instead of it being a thing that takes energy for you to go, think about it as a thing that you're going to receive energy, to receive spiritual truth, to receive the feeding of the word of God. And I think when we start to uh, categorize our participation in church that way, it's, it, what it does is it protects us from complaining. It protects us from being disgruntled. It keeps us encouraged. It's like, you know what? I'm at church four times during the week, and in none of those situations am I the one who's actually giving out the energy to serve. I'm actually just being fed. So instead of thinking about it as, oh, 
I'm spending time and I'm sacrificing to give to the church, we can adjust our thinking and go, I'm actually going there to be helped. And, and, and so then we can take with those categories, go, well, now in these circumstances, those are the times that I'm going to give. And if I properly think about my time at the church as being fed, then that feeding will strengthen me to come into the church in the times when I do the serving so that I can serve wholeheartedly with, a great, with great joy and satisfaction. So having that categorization is important because it not only keeps us from being disgruntled and complaining, it helps us align our thinking to see that in being fed, I'm strengthened for the service that I do at the church. And that kind of thought process is super helpful to you as a member of the church. And that's ultimately where deacons step in. They step into that role and they fulfill ministries that are giving, giving, giving. They're pouring their heart, their mind, their energy, their soul into the service of the church in whatever ministry they have. And what that does for you if you're not a deacon is that deacon's ministry alleviates you from the burden of having to do that ministry because he's doing it for you and you get to come to church and be fed. And come exhausted, come tired, come broken, come beaten down, come, come anxious and worried and scared and fearful and hurting and in pain. And whatever you're going through, however painful it is, whatever difficult trial or tribulation or suffering you're going through, whatever sacrifice you're being, God is telling you to make or whatever hardships you're going through, all the burdens that you bring, you come with them and the word of God fills you and you get fed and he's strengthens your resolve to handle and endure those hard things. And so you come tired and you leave strengthened and encouraged. And, And like that happens for you because these other men over here called deacons are are sacrificially serving you in any way they can. And these elders are sacrificially serving you in any way they can by the teaching of the word and leading and shepherding the church through whatever counseling or teaching or discipleship that goes on. And so the deacon has to take this role seriously because other people's lives are at risk. Other people's spiritual well-being is on the line. Other people's joy is, at, is, is at the, on the table. And, and so these deacons have to take their job seriously. This is what this word dignified means. And that doesn't mean the deacon has a mundane and funless job. It's a very important role that requires men who understand that what they are doing is putting into practice the very gospel that the elders are preaching and teaching. And that gospel that the elders are preaching and teaching is a very serious matter. So ultimately, the deacon takes the teaching of the gospel serious enough to put it into practice as they serve the church, which lightens your load and enables you to come to church with the mentality of, I may have to sacrifice some time to be with the body tonight, but I'm going there to be fed. I mean, just think about the different energy output and input that goes on on a Sunday morning. The, on a Sunday morning, the, the pastor is outputting. 
He's teaching. The worship leader is outputting his ministry and his energy and the Holy Spirit through the music. And, and the, the elders are outputting prayer for you. And we have communion. And whoever leads communion is outputting teaching and leading. And it's, it's an expenditure of energy. It's an expenditure of the Holy Spirit. Whereas if you don't fill any of those roles in the church because it's not your role and you just have a different role in the church and you show up and you meet a few people, you shake hands, you have this great relationship, you talk with your friends, how you doing, how's your week been, how's it going? And then you sit down and you receive, now you, you, you output worship to God as we sing, you output prayer in your heart to God as we pray together and you output uh, the, the, the mental strain that it takes to understand the words that are being preached to you. So there is an output for you, but it is mostly input. You are here to receive. I'm here to give. So we have different roles, and, and you can see that. And so on Sundays after church, it would make sense if I'm a little more exhausted than you. <laughs> and, and that's normal, and that's okay, and that's good. Because Jesus did the very same thing. Like I've said many times in Mark chapter 5, the woman touches Jesus' heel. Jesus is heel. And why does he know someone touched him? Because it says he felt the spirit pour out of him or drain out of him. So by, by, by doing ministry, we, 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 we are outputting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is manifesting himself through us as we serve. Which is why elders and teachers and preachers and worship leaders and whatever role you have, whenever you step into a ministry and your job isn't just to receive, but your particular job or role or ministry that day is to serve or give or output. If that's your role for the day, you have to be filled with the Spirit. Because if you're not, you're going to only output your flesh. And what does Scripture tell us? Jesus says in John 6, or... Mm, maybe not John 6. Somewhere in John, the, f- <laughs> the flesh is of no avail at all. The flesh will do you no good. I think it is John 6. I'm looking at Christian for confirmation. <laughs> I don't know. We'll look it up later. Anyways, um, the point is that if we're not filled with the Spirit, then we're just going to be outputting our flesh. And that, I mean, you can get by kind of, but it's just it doesn't produce the same fruit. Because only the Spirit can produce that genuine Christ-fulfilling fruit. And so it is vital that not just deacons, not just elders, but each and every one of us are filled with the Spirit. Not just filled with the Spirit when we come to serve, but also filled with the Spirit when we come to commune and receive. And those very, that, that very act of coming to receive and be taught and to be filled and fed is one of the means by which God orchestrates or sovereignly ordains you being filled with the Spirit. So, this role of deacon becomes a very serious and important matter, which is why Paul says, first and foremost, he must be dignified. He has to understand all of this. He has to have the big picture. This guy is going to serve the church, establish ministries, lead people in, in, by example, and have ministries that function that he has to that function according to the word. He has to know the word. He has to be wise. He has to be filled with the spirit. He has to be a godly man. He has to, have to be, has to be evidence of fruit in his life that tells us that this man is going to make wise decisions in his ministry, that he's going to sacrificially serve the body. He's going to give up whatever he can to make sure that these people's needs are met that, that 
that kind of stuff, you shouldn't have to tell the, the, the deacon, hey, deacon, you really ought to be better at these things. That man should already know those things. That's why they get appointed. And that's why this role is so important. Now, the next one is the deacon must not be double-tongued. Again, this speaks to the requirement that the deacon be full of the spirit and wise. Because being double-tongued is a matter of spiritual maturity. He must have integrity with his mouth. Not saying one thing and then doing another thing or saying one thing and then refuting that very thing by saying the opposite thing. We see this all throughout scripture. There's Proverbs and, and Old Testament, you know, in Ecclesiastes, and we see it in, in Proverbs, we see it even in Psalms and in other places too. But I'll just give you a few examples of how important being wise with our mouth is. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So imagine this. A woman is broken and hurting because she's lost a loved one and she comes to a deacon and says, I'm struggling and I'm hurting. And, and the deacon goes, this is my role. This is my role. Like he's thinking to himself, this is my role to serve this woman who has this need. I need to take this matter seriously. I need to be uh, dignified in my approach and I need to be compassionate and understanding. I need to use my words wisely because the hurting woman doesn't need sword thrusts into her torso with harsh words. What she needs is healing and the deacon's mouth must bring healing. Not because the, de- the requirement is that the deacon is a shepherd like an elder, but that the deacon is such a godly man and filled with the spirit and full of wisdom that when he speaks, wisdom pours out of his mouth. And as Proverbs tells us, this wisdom brings healing. So you can see why these requirements are so important when you think about how they are acted out practically. In Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit Wisdom with your mouth, wisdom with your tongue will produce fruit, which oftentimes means not using your mouth, right? Because Proverbs also teaches us that even a fool is considered wise when he doesn't speak. And so that is integrity with your words that produces life. And healing in the church. Whereas being double-tongued has the opposite effect. As Proverbs 15.4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Well, that sounds nice. But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So imagine that same scenario where there's this hurting woman who's lost a loved one. And she comes to this man for comfort and for need. Whatever that need may be. And he breaks her spirit with perversion in his speech by perverting truth or perverting reality or or twisting or tangling up things or not taking not having the wisdom to manage that situation with the right uh, attitude or perspective and therefore hurting instead with a gentle tongue he brings life meaning a double-tongued man is one who harms and destroys 
And he pierces a person's spirit instead of uplifting and encouraging and strengthening their spirit. That kind of lack of integrity or or being double-tongued reveals not only hypocrisy, but it also reveals ill and ungodly intentions. The only reason to speak from both sides of your mouth is to intentionally confuse or manipulate others. And that indicates evil intentions. And this, this is not a reference to making mistakes. I mean, we all say one thing and then do another thing to some degree. None of us are perfect with our integrity. All of us are hypocrites to some extent. And it's like there are times where we speak. I mean, think about it like this. Am I perfect from the pulpit? Probably not. Have I ever made a mistake at the pulpit? I mean, how do you determine what a mistake at the pulpit? Have I ever said anything that's not totally accurate? Yeah, like I'm not perfect in my knowledge of God's word. And so it's not, I'm not double-tongued or speaking out of both sides of my mouth because the implication here is that the double-tongued man is intentionally malicious and intentionally manipulative and deceptive because he's trying to somehow gain something for himself. This isn't someone who makes a mistake. Or an honest mistake. This is getting to the heart of the man who is manipulating for some sort of gain. So being double-tongued is not about making, like negating comments on accident. It's about the heart of the man being a manipulator and being deceptive and using his words to work people in the church for some sort of like evil motivation. Probably something selfish where he gains from it. And that kind of man is not qualified for the role of serving if instead of serving people, he manipulates them. And this means the deacon must be honest, not only in word and deed, but in his heart. Which will show up in the way that he lives and the fruit of his labor will be seen. Now, I'll just say one last thing about the role of deacon today. And this is really important. I think this is ultimately the point that that Paul wants to emphasize early on when he starts talking about deacons here. The deacon must be faithful to the teaching of the church and display that faithfulness through his ministry of serving the needs in the body. The way in which he is faithful to the teaching of the church is by his submission to the elders just as everyone else must submit to the elders, and just as the elders must submit to Christ and the word of God, and just as all of us, Ephesians 5.21, must submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of us have a role of submission. Every person submits. Even Christ submits to God. See that in 1 Corinthians 11.3. So, Everybody has a submissive role. And the deacon's responsibility is to not only submit to the word of God and submit to Christ, but to submit to the elders. So what I'm about to say is not just for deacons. This is for every believer because every believer is commanded to serve the needs of the body in some way, shape, or form. This submission of the deacon to the elders means that the deacon is to fulfill responsibilities that the elders appoint for him to fulfill. Too often, believers come to the church and they say, I want to do this or that because that's what I'm passionate about. 
I want to serve in this ministry or that ministry or do this or start that ministry or start doing this thing or start that or, or do this or serve in that way. I want to do these different things because that's what I'm passionate about. Or I want to do this or that because that's my gift or because that's what I have time for. The problem with this approach is that it reveals that your heart isn't humbly willing to serve the needs of the church. Instead, your heart is anxious to do what it thinks it's best at or what you think will satisfy your own desires. We have our approach backwards. Coming to the church and saying, I want to do this thing. Well, why do you want to do it? Well, maybe I'm excited about it or I'm passionate about it or I'm good at it. Well, that might not be a need. Maybe it is, and if it is, great, but that might not be a priority in needs in the church. Instead, what the body should be doing is coming to the church leaders and saying, what needs do we have? And how can I fill them? That is the heart, mind, and attitude of a qualified deacon. And that is the heart of Christ, and it should be the heart of every believer. The number of times I have asked people in my life and ministry as a, as a pastor and an elder, the number of times I've asked people, can you serve in this ministry? And they go, no, that's not my thing. And I'm like, I don't care if it's your thing. It needs to be filled. Will you do it? And, and like, I, it doesn't mean everybody should automatically always do anything that the elder asks them to do necessarily, okay? That's not what that means. It's not like a dictatorship. Like, well, I'm an elder, and I told you that you have to do it, and you should be wanting to fill every need, so do it. Like, not that kind of atmosphere or ethos, right? But what I'm getting at is that the heart of every believer should be, I want to be like Christ. Christ looks at you. I mean, Jesus admitted himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. I, hey, Father, could you let this cup pass from me? He's saying to to his father, I don't want to die. Like he's revealing his, and that's not sinful for him to, to perceive that because his response is, but nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. Jesus looks at the need and he goes, well, that's not a need I desire in my human flesh to fulfill. But because I am filled with the Spirit, and I am God, and I am Jesus, and I'm here for this very purpose to do the will of my Father who sent me, I do actually now want to do this. So Jesus looks at the the church, or, or what's not the church yet, but the world, and he goes, there's a need. It might not be the thing that I necessarily want to do, but it's the thing that's needed, and so I'm going to sacrifice what I want for what is needed. That's the heart of Christ. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. That's why we should approach the church and say, what is the need? How can I fill it? Amen. Now, it's, it's totally appropriate in that scenario to say, and by the way, here's my gifts. Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm passionate about. Are there any needs that fit those? I'm sorry. No, we don't have any needs that fit those particular things. But we do have this need over here that literally doesn't fit any of your gifts or passions or desires. And that person should go, oh, well, so be it. Let's do it. Because that's what Christ does. Now, maybe there's someone else who is passionate about it and they can fit there. That's fine. I'm not trying to get all logistical on how we do that. I'm trying to get to the heart of the believer that wants to express the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way that they serve the church. We should be a, we, 
we should be coming to the body of Christ saying, I want to find the need and I want to fill the need, even if it's not my thing. Because that's what Christ does. And I want to serve other people in that way. And what it does is it alleviates church leadership from the burden of having to navigate people's selfishness. And it enables the body to grow in ways you could have not otherwise grown. Imagine the growth that might happen in you if I came to you and said, hey, you are not gifted in this need. You are not passionate about this need. You are probably not even qualified for this need, but I need you to go fill that need. You think, do you not think that God's going to, if he's going to put you in that spot to serve that need and to fulfill that service, you don't think he's going to grow you? If it's not your passion, not the thing you're good at, not the thing you like, you don't think that God's going to stretch you there? You're going to grow. And that's ultimately is the reality and the reason why we only want to do the things that we're excited about and passionate about and like to do and we're good at. The only reason we want to do those things is because they don't force us to grow and we don't want to grow. Because growing hurts. And it hurts because growing requires discipline from God. And Hebrews 12 says discipline hurts. But discipline is the love of God for you. So we try to avoid doing things that would stretch us because stretching hurts because it's growth. So we try to find the, the, the little niche that's, that's our little pocket of, of something that we like to do where we're comfortable. And God's like, get out of your comfort zone and fill the need. That's what a deacon does. And that's what all, that should at least be the attitude of every believer. And because it's the heart of Christ and it is the heart of the gospel. And that's one of the ways in which we reveal the gospel to one another. So all of us and deacons must approach the church with the attitude of what is the need? Can I meet it? What must I do to meet that need? And what that does is it prevents you from magnifying yourself and your service to the church, it glorifies the gospel of Jesus Christ and your sacrificial service and your willingness to be broken and humbled and stretched. Because the reality is if you go do a thing that you're not necessarily good at or passionate about or gifted in, you're probably not going to be as great at it as someone who is. Which means you're going to have to be humble when you make a few mistakes. And that is going to be part of your growth. And we're afraid to do that because we want the comfort of doing the things that we're good at or that we love. The result of this is that the spirit will work. If you think about what is a spiritual gift, a spiritual gift is, and we've talked about this many times, it's not a tool that's in your pocket and you pull it out whenever you need to use it. Like, oh, I have the gift of evangelism and I'm not evangelizing right now, but when I do need to evangelize, I have the gift, so I'll just pull it out of my pocket and use evangelism. It's not what spiritual gifts are. First Corinthians 12 says that spiritual gifts are a manifestation of the spirit. The Spirit can manifest any gift out of you at any time necessary or required. So by stepping into a role that you might not think I'm passionate about or good at or desire to serve in, the Holy Spirit might surprise you. No, the Holy Spirit will surprise you. 
He will surprise you by manifesting out of you a gift you did not know was possible in you. And by doing that, you will be satisfied as you're sanctified. As the Spirit works and manifests manifests His gifts through you, even gifts you didn't think you had, and the result is a body of Christ that has its needs met and is therefore more prone to being unburdened to receive sound doctrine and sound teaching from the elders so that all of us can grow together. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. You're so good. Um, we all want to have the heart of Christ. We all want to have an attitude and disposition and personality and, and really just uh, the mind and heart of Jesus to where we want to express and exalt the gospel and our ways of sacrificially serving you, whether that's the role of deacon or just any other role in the church or um, whatever we do for the body, I pray that we would, we would have the gospel at the center of our ambition to see Christ, to know Christ, to be stretched, to grow, to be willing to sacrifice, to step into a role that we may not be comfortable with so that we can meet the needs of others not just so we can meet our own need of being satisfied in doing what we want, but that we can serve the needs of those who can't get what they want without their help. So continue to transform, Father, in us the heart and mind of Christ, gospel-centeredness as we think about what we do and how we can serve this body. And in doing so, may your gospel be exalted And Father, you be glorified and we be satisfied in you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.